It is our second week in the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth, that romance from the Bronze Age. Uh, Last week we had a pretty broad introduction to this book, uh, to the book itself, and to studying just like the historical narratives of the Old Testament, right? We've not done that as a church before, and so we wanted to talk about how do we come to a book of the Bible like that, where it's a story, it's historical, how do we study it? So it was a kind of a big thing, right? Um, After the sermon last week, somebody came up and thanked me for the history lesson. (laughs) Sermons aren't history lessons, right? They shouldn't be, at least. They should be aimed at our hearts, at our consciences, at our wills, aimed at producing the fruit of faith and obedience. But sometimes history can be important, right? History is important because context matters. God teaches us through history. And we take the Bible seriously at Church of the King, so we take context seriously. We take every book of the Bible seriously. Before we get into today's passage, I outlined last week three things to look for anytime we come to an Old Testament history. Remember what they were? One is typology, okay? Typology, the picture of Jesus. So if we use the story of David and Goliath, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, right? Yes, yes, yeah. David kills the giant, right? If we use the story of David and Goliath as an example, David David is the champion who crushes the head of the giant who is sort of serpent-like in his armor, right? He's a serpentine giant. David is a champion who crushes the giant serpent's head. Okay, that's a picture of Jesus and what Jesus came to do as our champion to crush the head of Satan, the serpent. Okay, David's a picture of Jesus, a shadow, a type. Okay, that's one way we read Old Testament history. We see types and shadows, pictures of Jesus. Another is providence, how God works in the world, how God likes to work. So, using David, small, foolish, young David, without armor, without shield, without sword, without spear, takes on the huge armor battle-tested warrior, and he wins. God loves to take the small, the weak, the despised, the foolish things of this world and use them to shame the strong so that his power is displayed in our weakness, how God likes to work on display in the story of David and Goliath. Okay? And then the third is moral, right? David had faith. David didn't just see a giant that was bigger than him, he saw the God that was bigger than the giant, right? David, by faith at great personal risk, did what God called him to do. And we should be like David. That's there too. We don't get to just look at this story and say, oh, I see Jesus. We're not David, right? No, it's all of the above. It's all of the above. We see Jesus in the story. We see how God likes to work. And we see an example for us to follow. Okay, so keep your eyes open for all three of those things as we study Ruth together. Okay, we'll see all three. We'll see pictures of Jesus in the church. We'll see principles that show how God likes to work in the world and in the lives of his people. And we'll see examples of love and loyalty and faith and goodness, masculine godliness and feminine godliness, for us to imitate. 
All right? Although what we focus on maybe from week to week will vary. Does that make sense? We good? All right, Ruth chapter 1. Let's read. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come into your presence asking you to feed us from your word. We have nothing that you did not give us. We're nothing apart from you. We depend on you. Open our hearts to your word. Open our ears. Soften us up. Give us tender consciences. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Help us to listen and to learn, to believe and to obey. Give me wisdom and power as I preach, be at work in each of us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that none of us leave here unchanged today. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, quick context recap, okay? In the days when the judges ruled, nice time to be alive or not nice time to be alive? Not nice, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. Not a nice time to live. There was a famine in the land. Famine stories. What happens in famine stories? How do they generally work? We see them happen over and over again, right? Abram Abram was faced with a famine. He had to leave the promised land to sojourn. He went away empty. He came back full. More wealthy and stronger than ever before right? Same thing happened to Isaac. Isaac was faced with a famine, so he had to leave the promised land to sojourn elsewhere. Isaac left empty. He came back full, stronger, more wealthy, more powerful. In each of these cases, Jacob was faced with famine. He had to leave the promised land. He went away empty. When he came back, it was Moses leading the host of Israel, of Jacob, numbering thousands upon thousands, carrying the wealth of Egypt. They went away empty. They came back full. That's how famine stories work. God uses them to establish his patriarchs, his people. When everything else is going poorly, God uses this discipline to redistribute wealth and power from the wicked to the faithful. That's what happens, what we see happening in Genesis. Okay, so when this language begins, there was a famine in the land and a man goes to sojourn, it's supposed to trigger something in our minds. This is what happens, what we see happening. But that's not what happens with Ruth. Famines get God's people where God wants them to be so he can bless them. It's not what happens. And Elimelech does not join the ranks of the patriarchs, at least not in that way. He dies. His sons die. His wife returns and says, not I went away empty and came back full, but I went away full and I came back empty. And yet God is at work here. A man of Bethlehem and Judah, Bethlehem and Judah, remember? City of David, city of Jesus. This is an origin story. How did Bethlehem become Bethlehem? Why did it begin to matter? This is where and how. This is how it became the city of David and the city of of Jesus. They went to sojourn in a country called Moab. Moab. Good, bad, ugly. Bad news, right? Bad news. God had forbidden his people from having anything to do with Moab whatsoever. Anything. You don't engage with Moab. You don't take wives from the women of Moab. Uh, In Numbers, the king of Moab deliberately used... Moab had a fertility cult and all kinds of gross sexual perversion. They were a people born of incest, like their history was one of incest. Okay, a lot of problems in Moab, a lot of sexual problems in Moab. The king of Moab used that, sent a bunch of women to try to seduce and lead astray the people of Israel. In the book of Numbers, you can read about it. For those reasons and more, God forbid his people to have anything to do with Moab. Anything to do with Moab. Okay. 
context, right? Those things matter. Having those handles in our heads matters. Moab, how bad, how, how, how it was looked at matters. Now, last week I asked a question, was it right for Elimelech to go to Moab in the first place? I gave three possible answers to the question, right? And then I said, I wasn't entirely sure what the answer was. I was sure of one thing though, and that was that Naomi left in a tremendous amount of pain and sorrow and suffering. She didn't know what God was doing. She couldn't see where the pain was headed. She just knew she was in pain and she had to get home back to God's people, back to God's place, back in God's presence. And then I said that whatever the causes of our own suffering and pain, we don't always have to see it or understand it, right? We don't always have to see or understand God's purposes in it. Sometimes we can see it right away. Sometimes it can take decades. But we do have to let ourselves feel it and let it drive us to God the way that it drove Naomi to God. And we have to trust that God's our good father who loves us. Now, this morning, I want to do three things as we come back through all of Ruth chapter one. I want to revisit the question of whether or not it was right for Elimelech to leave and take his family to Moab. And I want us to see what we can learn from that question. Then I want us to look more closely at Naomi's response after having been devastated. And finally, I want us to see the tenderness and sweetness of God at work in Naomi's life from the moment she sets her face to return to God's people. Okay? So back to Elimelech. Easy to stack up the reasons why it looks like Elimelech was wrong. It's so easy that pretty much every commentary that you read says, obviously Elimelech was wrong. The Bible does everything but say the words, Elimelech was wrong. So why was I hesitant last week to say that he was wrong? I think it's for a couple of reasons. Some of them may even be personal. One is I just don't like pat answers to hard things. It feels very pat to say Elimelech was wrong when it would have been very easy for the Holy Spirit to inspire the words, Elimelech was wrong. God put Elimelech to death because he left Israel. He didn't do that. And there are warnings in the Bible about presuming to know the reasons why God does hard things, right? The book of Job is this story of a righteous man who suffers while his friends accuse him of, why are you suffering like this? Why did God kill your children? Why did all this bad stuff happen? Obviously, you did something wrong. There's got to be a one-to-one correlation. And there isn't. And sometimes there's not. Sometimes hard things happen. Sometimes people die. God has his own purposes. And our job is to put our hands over our mouths like Job and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. His ways are not our ways. I don't understand the pain I'm going through. I can't connect it to anything. Except God is God. My job is to be humble and to receive his discipline. There's also a way that you can build a little bit of an argument that, well, it looks bad what Elimelech's doing, but is it really as bad as it looks? How much slack can we try to cut him? If we try to work to cut Elimelech slack, can we do it? And we kind of can, right? He left to provide for his family in a in a famine. He needed to be sure that they were going to survive and they had bread. David ate forbidden bread when he was hungry. 
Not only did God overlook that, Jesus brought it up and used it as an example of when the spirit of the law trumps the letter of the law. So when you read and see that if you're not intent on Naomi being at fault, well, there was a famine in the land. They left. When Naomi hears that the Lord has visited his people, what does she do? She goes back right away. Okay, well, maybe her heart was inclined that way. She was just waiting to know that she could be provided for. Maybe that was always the plan. Naomi's the first person to speak in this book. And when she does, it's a blessing. She blesses her daughters-in-law in the name of the Lord. She uses the proper personal name of God, Yahweh. Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord, Yahweh, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, Yahweh, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And Naomi, at least at this point, sees her life as being directed by God, right? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. When Orpah leaves Naomi, she goes back to her people and back to her gods, which maybe indicates that Orpah and Ruth had moved away from their gods in the first place. Maybe they left them behind when they joined this family. So there's some reason to say, maybe it's not as clean as we'd like it to be. Like I said, the Holy Spirit could have easily inspired the words, then God struck Elimelech down because he left Israel to sojourn in Moab. He didn't say that. When God doesn't do things like that, that could bring obvious clarity where he could, we have to be careful about making things pat. The lesson isn't always what we think it is. Sometimes in our lives, there's not a ready explanation for why God brings pain and suffering. It's not always directly and obviously tied to something. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And the case against Elimelech is strong. I just did the best job I can do to make some space for Elimelech. But the case against Elimelech is strong. Elimelech was not a patriarch. Elimelech was not special. God had not spoken to him. He was some guy. He was living in the promised land that wasn't just a promise anymore. It was realized. It was the place of God's blessing. It was the place of God's presence. He was living in Israel hundreds of years downstream, probably, well, certainly of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in God's place, among God's people. He wasn't alone like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alone. He was surrounded by God's people, God's family, his own family, He was under God's rule. The problem was Israel wasn't under God's blessing at the time. Israel was under God's discipline. But he exchanged the rule of God under God's discipline for the rule of Moab, a wicked, godless place. He left God's people and God's place behind to flee from the discipline of the Lord in the famine. He went to Moab, the land of God's enemies, when it had been forbidden to do so. And he remained there, it says. And then he died. And then his sons took Moabite wives, which was also forbidden. It was an indication of the spiritual condition of that home. They stayed there for 10 years. When Abraham needed a wife for his son, he went to look among God's people. They, They were less than a week's journey away from Bethlehem. In Moab. It would not have been hard. And then they had no kids, even though they were there for 10 years. And over and over again, the Bible makes clear that 
barrenness is a curse or a discipline of the Lord. So it piles on. And then they died. And Elimelech's widowed wife's judgment of the situation, Naomi's judgment, is that the hand of the Lord had gone out against her and that the Lord has testified against her. Now, any one of these things can be for any reason. Sometimes godly people just die. The reasons belong to God. Sometimes godly faithful people are are barren and unable to have kids, and the reasons belong to God. Sometimes the children of godly faithful people die, and the reasons belong to God. Right? When the hand of the Lord went out against Job, it wasn't for any sin Job had done. Job's counselors were quick to put connect dots where there were no dots to connect. But there is a lot of smoke here. Israel was already under the discipline of the Lord. It's what these famines in the times of the judges were about. Elimelech tries to escape that, and it doesn't work out well. Okay, it's complicated. Was he supposed to let his family starve and die? Of course not, but be careful. It's really easy to be right in every particular decision we make in our lives and have a good rationalization and explanation for it as we are moving away from God. Meanwhile, God's disciplining us and we're so confident of ourselves and our rationalizations that we're blind to see how God is disciplining us until it's too late. Have you ever seen people do this sort of thing? I've seen it a lot. They've got an answer for everything, a spiritual answer for everything as they're moving away from God toward destruction. A couple of weeks ago, Maybe it was last week, a couple weeks ago, I was reminded of a sad case of church discipline we had in Bloomington. I'm not going to go into the details. I can't. Okay? You try to help people. They reject your love and your care and your help and your wisdom. And then, and they have an explanation for everything. And years later, the oldest son is living an absolutely self-destructive lifestyle which you saw coming was part of what you were talking to them about. Next son is dead, shot and killed, breaking into a house, similar self-destructive lifestyle. Mom has cancer and is dying. And there are other things. And you just look and you say, yeah, you had your rationalizations. Look what God is, look at, look, stop, think, stop, think. Let the pain drive you to Jesus. Check yourself. Be willing to ask those hard questions. Yes, sometimes there's not an explanation, but sometimes there is. So I want us to ask, are there principles at work here? How do we avoid the fate of Elimelech and Naomi? What do we have to ask before we find ourselves in Moab with our sons married to Moabites? The first thing is that we have to do is be sure that we're not running from God's discipline when hard things come and that we are humbling ourselves under it. Sometimes we know God is disciplining us and when that is the case, we don't run. We repent, we humble ourselves under God's hand. We accept the consequences of our actions. We put ourselves in God's hand to care for us no matter how bad it looks. When King David sinned with Bathsheba, We know this story. King David sleeps with another man's wife. 
And then he sends her husband to the, he gets her pregnant. He sends her husband to the front lines in battle to die. When that happened, God came and disciplined David. And he told him, the son, Bathsheba's son is going to die and the kingdom is going to be taken from you. This is my discipline. David knew that God was right in his judgment, so David did not run. David accepted the consequences of his sins. He humbled himself before God. The son still died. The kingdom was still taken away. David held fast to God and humbled himself before God. And in due time, God restored David after he went through a lot. He lost everything. King Saul, on the other hand, tried to run from God's discipline and he could not run far enough. He would not humble himself under it. He tried to run. It caught up with him. One day we'll study the stories of Saul and David together. Here's question number one. Are there places in your life where you have failed? As a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as an employee, as an employer, where God is disciplining you or has been disciplining you, where there are consequences, where you are being forced to reap what you have sown. Don't run. Accept the consequences. Receive God's discipline. Humble yourself before the Lord. If there's a famine, should I let my family starve? No. Not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying. You do what it takes to take care of your family. Put up with a bad situation at work? No, it's not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm saying that God disciplines us as a loving father disciplines his children. We have to live by faith and trust him when hard things come. The decisions we make, we have to make by faith. Trusting in the goodness of our father and not running from him, but running to him. Because we will reap what we sow eventually. Okay, that's the first thing. Elimelech has a pasture and Elimelech's like, I don't know, the crops aren't producing. I think I'm going to go to Moab. It's the first thing that he says. Okay, hold up. Two, prioritize the spiritual well-beings of your, uh, well-being of your family. Your job, fathers, as a protector and as a provider, is beyond the material needs of your family. It's everything. Your family needs to be near to God and God's people. How much did spiritual considerations weigh into Elimelech's decision to take his family to Moab? It's hard to say, but fathers, be sure that for you, the principal consideration in anything you do for your family is the spiritual well-being of your family. Do not allow financial considerations to trump God. Prioritize God and the people of God. Your family needs to be near to God and to God's people. Your family needs family. Godly Christian community with multiple generations of mothers and fathers who love the Lord and love each other and take care of each other when times are hard. Having lived in a university community for almost 20 years, one thing I say to almost anybody considering a college or university or where to go to is don't necessarily think first about the school. Is there a church? Is there a a, a church family, a Christian community that you can be a part of that you will be loved and cared for. And I was just at our presbytery meeting this past week and a missionary to Taiwan stood up and pled with our whole fellowship of churches to plant a church in the community where his children attend college. 
It's a small community of 8,000 people in Michigan churning out the future conservative leaders of America. And he's saying, my children are dying. There's no church. It's a small community. There's no spiritual community or life on campus. My daughters are dying spiritually while they're at school getting this great conservative education. Please plant a church there. Please. How long did he talk about this, Ben? It was five plus minutes talking about how spiritually impoverished this community is and this school is and how it's draining the life out of his daughters. Don't put your education above your spiritual well-being. Don't put the education of your children above their spiritual well-being. I say the same thing or would say the same things to students who are graduating and looking for jobs in other communities. You be sure that you go someplace where there's a church that will love you and take care of you. That needs to be at the top of the list, not the salary, not the location. Those things matter, but they're not everything. Don't just pick a job and think you're going to figure out the God stuff later. Pursue his kingdom first and his righteousness, and all those other things will be added to you. How many families have relocated to difficult places and prospered financially only to suffer spiritually? Take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your families above all other considerations. You, your wife, your husband, your kids do not live by bread alone. Third, here's an idea. Don't marry God's enemies. Malon and Killian had no business marrying Moabites. It was forbidden. You don't have any business doing the same thing either. Malon and Killian grew up among God's enemies. They spent their time around God's enemies. They married God's enemies, so it would seem. It would seem that they learned from their father what their priorities should be. It doesn't appear that their priorities are the people of God. It doesn't appear that establishing a godly household was what they were after. A week's journey from Bethlehem, if it were a priority, it would not have been hard to take a trip, arrange a meeting. Abraham and Isaac did it for their kids. This family did not. Young men, young women, do not entangle yourselves with people who don't know God. It will not end well for anyone. If you are headed toward Jesus and your girlfriend and your boyfriend are not, how can you be walking together? It's not how it works. There's a reason God forbids his people from marrying non-believers in the Old Testament and again in the New. Bad things happen when they disobey. Bad things happen. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people make shipwreck of their faith because of a relationship with an unbeliever. Sometimes on rare occasions, God will pull a miracle out of it. I've seen it happen. It does happen. Praise God, it happens. But you don't disobey God and demand that he make miracles out of your disobedience. Lastly, realize that sometimes tragedy can't be avoided. God's ways are not our ways. Whatever happens, no matter how bad, when bad things happen, you turn to Jesus. Sometimes bad things happen. You've done everything or tried to do everything right. You've done some things wrong or a lot of things wrong or everything wrong or everything right, and it still goes wrong. And at the end of the day, you cannot undo what's been done. You cannot change the past. What's done is done. It is behind you. And the only question is, where do you go from here today?
So Naomi, whatever the case, her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. Where is she going to go now? What is she going to do? She sets her face towards God and the people of God. It's the only thing she can do. That's what Naomi does. Naomi's devastated. She gets a little bit of hope that there's food in Israel. She packs her bag. She's going back to God and to God's people. She takes her daughters-in-law with her. That would have been normal. There's some cultural weirdnesses here that kind of weird to us or new to us. When those women, Orpah and Ruth, left their father's houses, they became a part of this family. That's it. They're a part of Naomi's family now. Their job is to build this family. They're attached to Naomi. So they're headed with Naomi back to Israel. Somewhere along the way, Naomi stops and takes a look around and says, this is crazy. This is no good. There's no future for you coming with me. I'm old. I'm not going to get married. There are no men in this family, in this household for you to marry, and there will not be. So staying with this family doesn't make any sense. I don't know what's going to happen when we get back to Israel. You might be rejected. You're Moabites. I'm not going to have more sons. If I did, you couldn't wait for them to come of age. I'm basically going to be living as a beggar. Coming with me is coming to die. I release you. Go home. That's what's happening. She's releasing them from their obligation to stay with her. Go home. Go back to your mom. Go back to your family. Start over. Future with me is death. You're going to be a stranger in a strange land. No husband, no future. At the mercy of others until we die. Maybe no place to live. That is my fate. It doesn't have to be yours. Go start over. It's okay. You've done everything you can do. You've done right by me and by my sons. This is right in line with the same kind of thinking that led Naomi and Elimelech to Moab, right? It's very practical. Makes perfect sense. It's logical. It's pragmatic. Why should they stay in Israel and die? There's bread in Moab. Let's go to Moab. Why should these girls follow her to Israel and die? There's a family and future for them still in Moab. But what's missing in Naomi's calculations? God. God is missing in Naomi's calculations. Orpah leaves. She goes back to her gods. Something has happened to Ruth, though. She is not the same. She's not the same as Naomi. She has a different calculation. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. You want me to go back to Moab and to the pagan gods of Moab? Forget it. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge. She's saying, I know you, that word lodge means it has a temporary connotation. I know you don't have a home. Wherever you have to lay down, that's where I will be. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. When I, you die, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. You read the Old Testament, where you're buried matters. Joseph was intent 400 years later to have his bones taken back to Israel. Jacob was buried. They took him back to the promised land, his his bones. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord, Yahweh, do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you.
What's going on? Naomi may not have had the faith for Ruth to make the sacrifice of living by faith, but guess what? Ruth does. Ruth is ready to leave everything behind. Naomi left Israel with her husband and her children to go to Moab in search of bread. Ruth left Moab, her family, her security, her bread, the possibility of a future with a husband and children of her own. She left it all behind. It was not gonna happen. She's ready to live and die with Naomi and Naomi's God. Ruth the Gentile, Ruth the Moabite, is ready to put herself in the hands of the God of Israel. It's faith. And it's God's love to Naomi. It's a kindness. Naomi doesn't actually have to go alone. She's got Ruth. It's also a rebuke, isn't it? The Moabite, your Moabite daughter-in-law. She has faith for what you're about to do. She has faith to give up her life, to go with you, to put herself in the hands of the Lord. And God is going to honor that faith. How often in the midst of our pain and suffering do we see God's love to us when he is loving us through the people he puts around us? Ruth was the love of God to Naomi. I wonder how well Naomi saw it. I wonder how well she received it. All we know that is that when she was faced with it, she shut her mouth. She returned to Bethlehem. The people were amazed that she came home and that she had no one with her but Ruth the Moabite. We see throughout this story this sort of, this other kind of love, this other kind of faithfulness, this other kind of loyalty, this other kind of faith that's above and beyond. Ruth was ready to die, to be with God and God's people. It's beautiful. And it's going to turn some heads. And we'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Ruth's faith and love. Pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would give us faith to receive your discipline and to consider you above all things, to see you as our good Father who will provide and care for us and give us all that we need. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.